Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you can, please leave a five-star rating or a comment. Today's episode has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Babo Botanicals offers your family non-toxic and pure hair, skin, and sun solutions created with natural or organic solutions. Their tagline is, family comes first naturally. As an aside, I use Babo for literally all my kids' shampoos, body washes, sun lotions, and even for me too. So definitely check them out at babobotanicals.com, B-A-B-O, botanicals.com. I am thrilled to be here today with Danny Shapiro. Danny Shapiro is a celebrated author who has written nine books over the past 20 years. She has penned essays in Elle, The New Yorker, Vogue, and The Oprah Magazine, among many other publications. She also shares her gift by teaching writing workshops all over the world. She now lives in Connecticut with her husband and teenage son. So welcome to Danny. So let's start back at the beginning with Slow Motion from 1998, which, as I've told you already, is one of my favorite memoirs of all time. Uh, can you tell listeners what Slow Motion is about and then how you took all those life events and turned them into such a thing of beauty? Mm. Well, thank you. And it's wonderful to hear 20 years later that that was a book that, you know, that resonated so much with you. Um, so Slow Motion, at its core, is really about two stories that sort of braid together. And one is that um, when I was 23, my parents were in a devastating car accident that ultimately killed my dad and badly injured my mom. And where I was in my life at that time was in a really sort of spiraling, self-destructive place. I had dropped out of Sarah Lawrence. I was um, involved with a man that if you looked for like just the worst imaginable choice in a boyfriend on the planet. He might have, you know, fit the bill. He was much older. He was married. He was the stepfather of a very close friend of mine. Um, he was uh, quite powerful in New York of the 80s. And I, despite attempts not to, got sort of swept into a long and very destructive relationship with him and dropped out of college and 
um, was drinking heavily and um, doing my share of 80s um, narcotics and um, is cocaine a narcotic? Yeah, I guess so. Whatever it is, that's what I was doing. And um, and then my parents were in this accident, and it was this tremendous wake-up call. I mean, instantly. It was just, uh, I describe it as a bef before and after moment at the very beginning of the book. I received this phone call. I was at a spa, you know, in Southern California where all good 23-year-old college dropouts should be. And I got this call that my parents had been in this accident. And, and from that moment, and two weeks later my dad died, I began to extricate myself from that destructive relationship and I I woke up. You know, I, I sort of had to um, and I did. And I wanted eventually, I mean, I became a writer. I, I think I always was a writer but didn't know you could be a writer. And after, after my father's death and after um, I helped my mother um, literally get back on her feet, I went back to college, I finished college, and I went to graduate school at Sarah Lawrence, and I started writing a first novel, which did come out and nobody should read. But it was sort of my attempt in fiction to grapple with some of this, and I wasn't remotely ready to. Was that and Picturing the Wreck? That was, no, it was no. called Playing with Fire. Okay. And it was published in 1990. Okay. I was, you know, just, like, fresh out of graduate school. I, I, I sold it while I was still in graduate school. But it wasn't a book I was ready to write. It's actually very helpful to me as a teacher now to think about um, where the writer stands in relation to the work. Hmm. Um, I was too close, way too close to it. So I wrote this very autobiographical novel, essentially so that I could write about that period of time. I mean, I've joked that if I had set that novel in Sri Lanka, there still would have been a car accident in Short Hills, New Jersey. Like, I had to write that. But I wasn't, but I wasn't ready. So... I wrote two more novels, and then when I started to write Slow Motion, it was from a place of feeling like I wanted to dig in and understand um, my own relationship to the story, which was really the story of my life at that point, which was how does the worst moment in your life become the transformative moment, um, and wanting to wanting to explore that. So those two stories, the story of the tragedy of my, 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 my dad's death and my parents and the extricating of myself that resulted in that, that I don't know, I don't know what would have happened if my parents hadn't been in their car accident. I miss my father every day, but I don't know what would have happened to me because I wasn't, nothing was shocking me out of where I was. And that did. I think what was so great about your book, especially for me at that time, because I was graduating from college when I was, when your book came out, finding yourself, as you say, in this way that might was the last choice you ever would have wanted as a way to find yourself, but throughout the book, coming, like, hitting bottom and then pulling yourself out and showing the reader how you did that. Anyway, I just Thank thought you. it was... Well, we, you know, we don't choose what's going to wake us up, and, um, and that certainly wouldn't have been my choice, um, but I'm glad I woke up. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad only because of the books that <laughs> came, came out, although I'm sure no matter what, you would have been an amazing writer. It's obviously in your DNA. Um, uh, in slow motion, you talked a lot about sort of struggling with substances, as you were saying, narcotics or whatever. Did this continue to plague you at all throughout your career, or was it, were you able to put mm. that aside? Or? Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, drugs certainly were just something I was completely done with, um, which was easy. Uh, in fact, you know, I have an 18-year-old son, and, you know, when you write memoir, you do end up um, with your kids knowing more about you than you might choose. Um, and so he and I have had very open conversations in which I've told him to do as I say and not as I did. But one of the things that I will say to him is um, don't swallow anything or smoke anything or put anything up your nose when you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. you know, like, and, and I think back to the, the young woman who did that, you know, just just did that and 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 it's so inconceivable to me that that would be something that the person that I am and I actually think the person that I always was but was had a lot of layers of other other selves sort of on, on top of her in a way um and yeah so so the answer is no I mean I still I didn't drink for years and then eventually I started 
drinking wine again, and I, I, I do like it. I probably like it a little. <laughs> no, no, I'm not trying to get into it. I just meant the, yeah. the big struggle. Oh, gosh, I don't, no. I'm not, I'm, I'm in, I'm yeah, not but, judging. I'm no, like, but, you, but you know what's funny? Because people will sometimes read slow motion and make the assumption that I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. Because when you write multiple memoirs, yeah. you know, I mean, life, if we're fortunate, is long and full. And so, and I have written multiple memoirs which is so surprising to me. I thought I was only going to write fiction, but I've continued to return to memoir. And people will read, readers of mine will read, not necessarily in the order of, of the books that I've written, but sometimes backwards, and be sort of stunned by slow motion because mm-hmm. the woman who wrote the later books doesn't seem, it doesn't seem possible that she right. would have been that spiraling young woman. But sometimes we are that spiraling young woman and then we grow up and then mm-hmm. we become wiser and we become other things and we have these um there's this beautiful phrase um that i believe i quote in devotion it's a um no actually it's an hourglass it's this english moral philosopher um who uh, describes the inner crowd you know all of the selves that like that comprise the inner crowd the crowd inside of us so it's Mm -hmm. like which which one's gonna find her voice for that or her strength or her will for that moment how does, just going back to your mention of your son, how does he feel with so much of your life and even with Hourglass, more of his life, in addition, ex- sort of exposed in this way? One of the things that was really important to me and that I, I really think that I, I thought the day he was born, <clears throat> I looked at him and I thought, you did not ask to be born to a mother who's a writer. How am I going to deal with this? Because I felt instantly changed... I think the way that we feel changed by motherhood just instantly, you know, I was now a mother and it felt, and this was, I mean, I didn't, that I remember thinking the rest of it, which was, I had been comfortable writing about my parents all my life. I've been comfortable writing about certain other people. I take care to try not to hurt anybody, but I've never felt like I didn't have a right. And now here is this baby who was, you know, entitled to his privacy mm-hmm. and and I think what happened over time because I I did eventually and I do write about him some is that I l- sort of looked for my own set of rules about this and chief among them was I don't want him to ever be 30 years old and turning to me and saying I wish you hadn't written about me or I wish you hadn't written that particular thing about me um, and so that's been my compass um, very much never, never want, even posting a photograph of him on Instagram, I check with him first. Um, and, and actually when Hourglass came out, my husband and I were away and, and I knew that our son was reading it. Um, I'd given, I always give him the very first copy that comes from, from the publisher. So I, you know, and inscribe it to him. So I knew he was reading it and he texted me, um, and he said, I'm, I'm reading your book. It's helping me fall asleep at night. <laughs> Great. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and, you know, he can be a wise ass, but I wasn't sure what he meant. And I, I, I literally wrote back, ha, ha, ha. And, and he wrote back, no, really, it feels like you and dad are with me. Aw. Because he, it was, I think, the first time we had ever been, like, across an ocean from him. Um, usually he was with us. So, so there was this... That was probably the best reaction that anybody had about Hourglass, but um, of his, because it felt like he recognized his parents and our life and our family on the page. And I really, I didn't want to embellish it or to um, in any way demean it. I wanted to try to capture it. And, and, And also regarding my son, you know, when he was when he was growing up and he was 13, 14 years old, he wasn't a reader. He completely wasn't a reader. And we would take him to writers' conferences all over the world. So he knew so many writers, um, amazing writers. And it never it never just seemed to really sink in. He just was friends with these folks. And then when he turned about 15, he started, it just, the flip got, a switch got flipped and he started reading. And then suddenly he had this feeling. He would text me and say, like Anthony Doerr, for example. Mm-hmm. He's like, Tony's a genius. <laughs> like, yes, he is. I was like, I just thought he was his great dad. And like I played football with or Jim Shepard or, you know, just 
he he really started to um, fall in love with reading and writing and words, and it's certainly not something that we made happen or could possibly have forced. In fact, quite the opposite. I think it took him so long to fall in love with reading because it was all around him all the time. But so I think that respect, too, for a sense of um, what it is to try to capture something that's true um, between the pages of a book. Um, I, I don't know that he wants to be a writer necessarily, but I think he um, has a real affinity for it and therefore like respect for what we what we do. My husband and I, my, my husband's also a writer, so... Yeah, but that but but then every once in a while he'll meet someone. I've seen this happen. Like he'll he'll meet someone and and that person who who has read my work will say, "Oh, I thought you'd be so much younger." <laughs> it's like he's frozen in time at wherever someone has has read about him. Um but he I don't I don't think at least as best as I can tell that he feels a sense of his privacy having been uh invaded in any way. I think that's sort of one of the more challenging things as my own kids grow up is like I want to confide in my friends or other people about the things that I'm going through in relation to what my kids are going through, but I feel I can't. Like it's their, some of these things are now their issues. These are people. Like I'm not at liberty to just spread all these things and talk about them. So it's almost like, I don't know, like hiding, not secrets, but it's, it's, it's like something that's come in between, I feel like ability to be close sometimes to other people because it's like my kids' stuff. I have to protect their privacy. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, tangent. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so you teach seminars now all over the world. In fact, I almost went to your one to the Canyon Ranch, but I would have had to change all my custody. It ended up not being worth it. Um, how do you teach students to write like you do, which is so beautiful, and which part of what you do is a gift versus something that's learned or something that you can teach, which I know you've written about, but for people who don't have time to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wrote about this recently, and the thing that I sort of arrived at in terms of the the gift part of it, which can't be taught, um, is that it's like um, having excellent pitch as a mu- musician or perfect pitch or an ear. Um, there's... And it's different for every writer, but finding um, sort of the... the the, the truth and the truth of your voice and then at the same time the musicality or the the lyricism or maybe it's not lyrical maybe it's extremely hard-hitting and journalistic and um, sort of take no prisoners I mean whatever it is I think when a writer is writing at the height of her abilities it has to do with having found that place like the the the, the essential authentic place from which the work springs as a teacher, I mean, I can certainly offer my students a lot of tools. There definitely is a whole big box full of tools in terms of craft. But the the truly gifted writer never thinks about tools, and that's a paradox, right? So a bunch of years ago, I was invited to teach undergraduates, and I hadn't taught undergraduates in a, in a long time. And the night before, this was at Wesleyan, actually, and the night before I was about to start teaching, I panicked because I thought how do I teach them craft? And I started like going online and down- <laughs> downloading like manuals about, you know, voice and sense of place and building like, you know, it was a like, point of view and character and it, it was absurd, but it was like, I don't even know how to talk about this because I just do it and, and sense it and, 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 and almost in an animal way, sort of like feel my way through it. Um, but the, tool- the toolbox still can be unpacked. And the other thing that is possibly more important than the toolbox is courage. And um, a kind of, I think so many people embarking, the inner sensor just comes roaring to the surface. I write about this a lot in still writing. Like the, 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 the sense of what is the voice in your head telling you? Is it saying, this is stupid, so-and-so did it better, I have no right to write this. People are going to laugh. Um, I should really spend a lot of time doing research about this before I embark on it. Whatever the version is of it, shame, you know, self-loathing, like what, what the and the voice, that inner voice, which also keeps on shifting, never stays the same. Um, something that a writer alone in her room loses sight of the fact that 
Everybody who's alone in her room feels that. Everybody. Um, I think there's a, there's a kind of comparing um, one's own experience to the books on on the shelves, right? And thinking, well, you know, Alice Munro didn't go through that when she wrote that perfect short story, or, um, you know, Laurie Moore didn't go through that when she wrote Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, or whatever. And it's not true. Every writer at the beginning of a new piece of work is completely lost. It feels impossible. And the only thing that makes it feel possible is day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, grappling with it. And I can... I think I have a particular ability to really talk about that with students and empower them with the notion that what they're feeling is not only like typical and normal, uh, but useful. That it's actually useful for the artist to feel all that discomfort and to feel like she has absolutely no idea what she's doing. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier you went back and forth between fiction and memoir. What's it like for you writing the two different mediums? I'm sure you talk about this all the time, but mm. um, how does it feel to be like delving deep inside yourself and figuring out what to include, what not to include versus crafting a story? Yeah. And no. even the structure. I've been hearing a lot about people spending so much time <clears throat> thinking about the structure of their books mm-hmm. and how important that is. Like, does it differ when you do memoir versus fiction or? I think every every book sort of announces its own structure at a certain point, but the feeling that I have when I'm working on a novel, and that said, it's been a while since I've been working on a novel, but the feeling that I have is, the first feeling as, as a fiction writer is that it's all up for grabs, right? Mm-hmm. The entire universe is up for grabs. There's yeah. no parameters. And, and the writer begins to build a world that's an imaginary world, and then when something takes hold and that starts to feel real, it feels as real as the world that I'm walking down the street in. Um, it feels like it's accompanying me and like I'm sort of living a double life in a way. And there's this world that I can sidestep into and it's the world that I've invented and it is as real to me as the world that I live in. Um, the landscape is real to me. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I mean, my novel, Picturing the Wreck, which was published forever ago, the main character um, is a psychoanalyst who lived in a brownstone on Riverside Drive. And whenever I pass that corner, <laughs> I think about Solomon. And it's not the corner where the yeshiva is and the corner where, you know, I've you know, been down that block a thousand times in my real life. But to me, Solomon occupies that territory still and always. And mm-hmm. so it becomes real that way. And then eventually the confines of that world become defined. Um, So it's not all up for grabs. It becomes, you know, narrowed into what is the story, who are the characters, um, what is the landscape. And and then memoir, it's not all up for grabs. It's not the whole universe. It's something about an experience that has been lived um, or or an aspect of memory that um, is sort of asking to be plumbed in some way. And so... The feeling for me is is of like doing this deep, deep, deep inner dive and going to this place inside of me that is very small and very compact, but when it expands, when I go there, it, it expands. Because if it expands at all the time, you know, we you know, any anyone who anyone who's doing this kind of work would, you know, have to be just, you know, put into a straitjacket. You could like <laughs> you couldn't live in that way all the time and I thought a lot about this because people would ask me that because they would say, you know, you write about some really dark and painful things, but you seem to have a relatively content life. How do you do that? And and I really thought about it because I thought, how do I do that? And I think it's that when, I, when I'm when i there, I'm all in. <clears throat> and when I leave, I can, like, come back up to, bob back up to the surface and, you know, put dinner on the table. It's impressive. I feel like it's almost like the difference between starting a construction project from scratch when you just have like land like fiction is like whatever can be overwhelming but like a renovation is more like a memoir right because you have to work with something or I would say you're building a room Mm. you're building like one room you know is it is it is it the dining room is it the den is it the master bedroom is it a closet you know like is it the basement what's in the basement you know it's it's 
having written these multiple memoirs and surprising myself by doing so, the feeling is, it's not that I think that my life is so interesting. I don't. It's that I have these questions that I want to explore, and I use my memory as a tool to explore them. So... So it's really a very specific, you know, Hourglass was really about time and marriage, and devotion was really about a spiritual existential crisis. Um, and Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, asking myself the question, what do I believe? Do I... Do I believe anything? And if, like, and and what what are the questions that I need to ask to discover that? And slow motion was more of a classic memoir in the sense of it was a story. It was over the course of a year, um, and I mean it moved into the past and into the future. But essentially, it began and it ended over the course of one year, and it was chronological. But so these are each in a way. You know, I've, I have an elderly aunt who I'm very close to, who's 93, and she's a poet. I mean, she would, she would blush if she heard me describe her that way, but she really is. And she said to me once, my life is a museum. And, I, and, I just, and she was talking about memory, like I can wander into this room, mm. I can wander into that gallery. And I thought it was so beautiful and such an incredible thing to be able to say as a nonagenarian. Um... And it struck me as a very contented feeling and also probably a very true one, um, one to aspire to, in a way. And I think that when I write memoir, it's, it's, it's about looking at a particular aspect of life through this, the specificity and idiosyncrasy of my life. Um. So when you write about a midlife marriage and expose things, not, not, not expose is the wrong word, but when you share things about your marriage, how do you decide what you're going to put in and what you're not going to put in? Like, do you have an example of a scene that you debated putting in the book but decided for whatever reason not to? Mm. Well, first of all, I think that the art of memoir is always what to put in and what to leave out, always. Um in writing about one's marriage that one, like, hopes to stay in, <laughs> it yeah. becomes a little more uh, crucial. What came to mind when you asked that is that there were any number of times where I stopped at a certain um, moment where I thought, do I dare? Like, do mm. I go there? And because my husband is my first reader and because we were... Um, our process, my process has always been that I read to him at the end of the day. So it took me a while to understand this after our, I finished Hourglass and people were asking me that question. Um, but I read to him every day when I was writing Hourglass the same way as I would if I were writing any other book. And the thing that came to me later was that we weren't sitting there like 
now it's time to discuss our marriage at 7 o'clock at night after the day is done. It was, now it's time for me to read you pages of my book. And we're going to talk about it as a book. And my husband always has my back as a reader, and he's going to push me to make it the best book that it can be. So there's even a moment in Hourglass where he turns to me and says, um, I, think, I think what you're working on is great, um, and I'm an okay guy, but you're not being hard enough on me. And I remember, and we were standing in the airport in Denver, and we were about to each get on different planes, and he said that to me, and I thought, A, he's right, B, that's going into the book. <laughs> and it's actually a moment in the book where I become a little bit harder on us, not just on him, but sort of holding our feet to the fire in some way as a couple. But they're definitely, I'll give you an example. So ooh, I'm fairly far into the book because one of the things that I came to realize about us as a couple is that our tolerance for risk is very different. Mm -hmm. um, it's, mine has grown over the years by virtue of having been with him for over two decades, but um, it's different. He was a war correspondent. His tolerance for risk involves, you know, flak jackets and bullets and explosions, and um, mine does not. And so we, there was an ice storm in Litchfield County, Connecticut, where we live, and we lost power and we needed to leave the house. And our son was young, strapped into his um, baby seat in the back. And so we're like skidding down this just really, like the governor's on the radio saying, stay, stay indoors and trees are uprooted and it's you know really catastrophic and we're heading to a friend's house where they have power and my husband suddenly turns in a completely different direction from the friend's house and I I said what are you doing and he said I just want to see what's going on <laughs> like yeah. no yeah. turn around and it was really like a how not only how could you do this but how could you not understand how deeply I wouldn't want to do this right so he turns around and he drops my son and me off at our friend's house. And then, you know, we're all getting cozy by the fire and drinking hot chocolate. And he goes back out into the, the wild and um, he comes back a while later. And the way that I had written it in the book was, you know, he comes back in and he, and I write, um, his cheeks were ruddy and his eyes were bright. It's like a war zone out there, he said. And the scene didn't quite land. And I kept on thinking, what am I not what am I not doing here? What am I not being honest about here? And finally, one day I was working on the scene, and, you know, he comes back in, and his cheeks are ruddy, and his eyes are bright, and I wrote the words, I hated him. And then, it, it, it's like a war zone out there, he said. And I looked at that sentence, I deleted it. I wrote it again, I deleted it again. <laughs> I, like, five times I did this. And then finally I was just like, okay. And when I turned the book back into my editor... Um, this was really late in the game. I mean, this was like the draft that was going to be published. Mm -hmm. She called me up and she said, that is my favorite sentence in the whole book because it rang of honesty. Mm -hmm. But one of the lessons about it too, though, is like now I can talk about that because, of course, it's ridiculous, the idea that we don't sometimes hate the people that we're with. Of course we do. But in that moment, like what spouse doesn't hate that flash of just like, oh my God, right. I just, I can't stand you right now, right? But it was this moment of just, I can't go there. And for a writer, I think for any creative person, anyone trying to create something, that feeling is, I mean, Didion put it this way, but you know, that feeling is gold. That like, oh, this is too close to the bone, too scary, I can't. That's where you have to. Um, you told me at the library lunch the other day that readers often feel like they know you really well after they've read all your memoirs. But in actuality, this is a you that is carefully crafted and selected, and um, it's not the, the whole you. What part of you would readers be surprised to unearth? That's a great question. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't know that it's so much about, like, the facts of me. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in a lot of ways that my... Um, well, I, the reason why I'm kind of stumbling is because I do share it. Like, I don't think readers would be surprised to find out that I am anxious sometimes or um, that... Uh, 
Yeah, that feeling of, I mean, I write about it a lot in devotion, of like the other shoe, mm-hmm. you know, the other shoe dropping. Um, it's not so much even emotional truths of me and certainly not facts about my life. I think it's more that it's very different to sit across um, a table from someone and get to know them than it is to read them on the page where everything is everything has been so carefully crafted. Um, I don't craft in a self-protective way. I craft in a way that has to do with making the book be the best book that it can possibly be. And if it belongs in the book, I don't worry so much about whether I'm exposing myself. But you know, when we moved to Connecticut from New York, I was getting to know new people for the first time. I was you know, a young mom, you know, mom friends, new friends in Litchfield County, just people. And I was noticing that nobody was asking me anything about myself. Hmm. And it took me a while to figure out why. And it was because they thought they already knew. Mm. And simultaneously, people were telling me their deepest, darkest secrets. And I kept thinking, why is this happening? Do I have some big, like, (laughs) confess to me sign (laughs) over my head? And those two things together, I came to realize they were telling me their secrets because they felt like they knew mine. I don't think it was conscious. I think it was completely a sort of unconscious process that went went on. And it's a the very strange, you know, world of the of the memoirist in that way. But it left me a little lonely because I felt like, but wait, you're not getting to know me. Don't mistake my books for the human interaction of becoming friends with somebody. Because that's really different. I think that's what I meant by that more than anything. That's funny. I wrote this essay about how sometimes after the kids go to bed I find myself, you know, eating over the kitchen sink or, you know, whatever. And then I went into my son's school the next morning and I had, like, all these people coming over and being like, oh my gosh, I eat Girl Scout cookies and, like, I ate an entire, you know, Costco bucket of whatever last night. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Great. Nice time chatting with you. But it is the same thing. I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. It's it's, it's odd and funny and interesting, but, you know, the, the poet Jane Kenyon describes writing the writing of a poem and the reading of a poem as the poet like reaching out to the reader, reaching a hand out and saying, Me too. You know, me too. I've I love been that. there that's too. So nice. Yeah. And that's what that's what reading is and that's what writing is, I think. Um, and it can certainly feel like, wait, whoa, how did you know that? Oh, right, yeah, right, right, right. Because yeah. because the self that's writing is not the self that's doing drop off. Exactly. That's part of that inner crowd we were talking about, right? So the self that's doing drop off is like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. That's interesting. Do you find a difference in how you write now that you're in Litchfield County versus in the city where you used to be? Do you feel the pace of your writing has changed with the pace of life out there, or is it... I would say what's most different about it, and now it's been a while, and I've written several books since since we moved there, is that you, I have to make my day there. Like, I have to make the shape of my day. The day will not have any shape Shape won't happen to my day unless I make it happen. And I remember really early on living up there and opening the door um, onto our porch and looking out into the meadow and just realizing that nothing was happening. You know, it's not opening your door and life is just, you know, just happening in every direction all around you. Um, So that then requires a certain amount of conscious discernment. But I was always disciplined. And, you know, actually, I don't like that word because people often say to me, you must, you must be really disciplined. I've always written the way that I've written because I feel so much better if I do. How is the way, what is the way you write? Um, well, it's changed a little bit, but when I'm working on a book, daily. Um, earlier in my writing life, five days a week, weekends off. It was like I really had a kind of Monday through Friday, um, before, before family life, before children, getting up in the morning, basically rolling out of bed, making myself a cup of coffee and getting to work and not letting anything get between that Mm. sort of dreamy state and getting to work. Then I had a child and I had to sort of recalibrate how am I going to get up in the morning, be there for my son, make lunch, take him to school um, and then get to work and be present for him, not be in this kind of like, whoa, my head's in the clouds, mommy's, mommy's already working. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to do that. And so I had to learn how to restart the day. Um, a meditation practice has been enormously useful to me in that regard. Um, but still I would need to start the day, like do drop off and then get to work, not do drop off and then go hiking with a bunch of moms and then get to work or 
I've never been able to like work out in the morning as much as that means that often it means I don't work out. If I work out in the morning, I'm already feeling too much like the day has gotten underway. Um, a difference now is that I write all the time. So um, if I'm in the middle of a book, it could be, and my son is, you know, he's a senior in high school, so I have the liberty to do that seven days a week. Or um, the only thing that remains the same is trying to start the day with it. I had friends early in my writing life who didn't understand why I couldn't meet for breakfast or why I couldn't have lunch. And one friend in particular would always be like, you know, you're so rigid, you don't answer your phone. Um, this particular person is a therapist. I felt like saying, like, <laughs> you don't answer do you your answer phone? your yeah. phone? Like, or you're in the middle of a session. I'm working. Um, and just needing to really protect that time and make it sacred. That's the thing that remains true all the way through, is that, like, it's hard enough to sit down and do the work. Um, creating a, a sense of sacredness around it or of not... And the internet is not our friend in this regard. So finding ways to shut down the outside world. You know, the I could talk about this forever, but the, the, the instrument upon which a writer writes is also the portal to everything else. So, mm. And you can still look like you're doing the same thing. You know, right. If you're meditating and you stop and you get up and you go down and stare into your refrigerator, you know you've stopped meditating. And you know, anyone observing you would know that too. If you're sitting and writing... All you need to do is like click and you could be on net a porte like buying a pair of boots. <laughs> In which case, I mean, I'm not speaking of myself. No, no, of no, of course not. Of course not. You know, but but even in the name of research, like clicking on something because you think you really need to know about that particular, you know, sofa that they're sitting on at that moment. It's like, no, you don't. That's what TKs are for. And just staying in the discomfort. It's, it's a way in which the writing practice and a meditation practice are actually very similar. Mm. Like staying in the, you know what, I'm not comfortable and I really want to get up and my mind is racing, but I'm going to stay here anyway because these are like passing clouds in the sky. It's going to pass and I don't want to miss the thing that maybe I'm avoiding by going boot shopping at this moment. There's a, there's a um, for your listeners who are writers... There's a, uh, an app that I use that I've turned a lot of people onto called Freedom. And do you know about this? I don't. No, tell me. So it's an app. You just keep it on your desktop. And if you want to basically shut everything down, you click on it, and it asks you how many minutes of freedom you would like. Or hours. <laughs> yeah. It's come to this. It's sad. Sad but true. I mean, um, it's like, infinity I, freedom. No. You know, right? <laughs> the first time I ever did it, I thought, oh, three hours. Again. And then... Do you know how long three hours is without any interruption? Our brains have stopped being able, if they ever were able to, they've really stopped being able to do that because they toggle back and forth so much between um, different, you but know. Can't you cheat? Can't you, like, put you really freedom can't. on the well, if you laptop have your f- and then have your phone? If you have your phone with you, then you're cheating. Yeah, yeah, but if you put your phone in the other room, or you can also put your phone on freedom, um, what it does, I do it for myself literally in half-hour increments. And I do a half an hour, and it's amazing to me how quickly that half, half hour goes by, and a little ding happens, and it shows you your time is up. You can just re-up it. And I've done that, you know, I do that multiple of time, times, often not hmm. then going and checking my email or feeling like I need to look at Instagram or find out what's going on in the world, because all of that can be so enormously distracting yeah. from... I mean, there's this relatively new field of information science, and it's been studied that... A, being interrupted by a single phone call um, will set you back um, 11 minutes in terms of where your attention was. That's a phone call. That's one phone call. And if you think of what we all do with our devices all the time, it's like we're never recovering. We're never, we're never catching up. And every writer friend of mine who I talk to about this is grappling with the same thing because it's just there on the instrument that you're writing on. I know, I was feeling stressed. I'm trying to write a book now, and so far I've only been able to write when I'm on an airplane. Because, because I'm like uninterruptible. Totally, yeah, so I was like, you know what? I was telling my husband, I was like, maybe I'll just make that my thing. I'll just write the whole thing. Whenever we travel, I'll just write it on planes. Because I can't funny. seem to get that, you know, at least with lots of kids. I don't know. Well, I mean, creating like, a bubble. Having schools call, and I just feel like there's always something. Well, yeah, like, and it's very hard for you to put your phone away in that situation. You know, um, friend of mine, a writer named Alexander Chi, who just had a new book come out, um, a couple of years ago he tweeted um, something about wouldn't it be great for Amtrak to um, offer 
residencies to uh, to writers, and <laughs> and Amtrak did. No. Yes, and so I don't know if it's still ongoing. I think I think it might be, but a couple of years ago it was like really a thing. It very well may st- still be ongoing and very competitive. All the writer like people applied for this basically fellowship to be able to get on board the train, you know, in New York. And just ride the train, like ride the train across the country. Doesn't that sound divine? Yeah, I you know, you definitely get a lot done. Like you get a lot done, and 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 that sense not only of not being interrupted, but not being interruptible, which is a which is a different. I was at a writers' colony called Hedgebrook, a women's only amazing uh, writers' colony on the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest last year or the year before, and I remember sitting in my little cabin there and thinking. I am uninterruptible. No one, there is no, there's, there's, there's no internet here. Um, I mean, if there were an emergency, somebody would know how to contact me. But other than that, you're like interrupted by the owl out the window. That's pretty much it. And that is a tremendous luxury for, you know, anyone who's a busy mom or working more than one job or, you know, whatever, whatever the particular um, responsibilities of a life are. There's always this sense of, you know, how long do I have? Let me, let me like writing in the, you know, in the corners and in the margins. So planes, trains, colonies, weekends yeah. away. <laughs> Joan Didion used to check into um, hotels. It's very romantic. Yes. I love that. <laughs> nice hotels too. Awesome. Good for her. <laughs> Um, you told me that you recently handed in your next book and you couldn't really say anything other than you had uncovered a family secret. Mm. Um, and now I'm like, what could this possibly be? So can you give us any more hints or, um, um, any, any, any hint, any more to that at all? Or when it's coming out? Any? I can tell you the title, uh, which is Inheritance. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging to figure out how to talk about this right now because... It, I did, right after I finished Hourglass, I stumbled upon a really, really massive family secret and one that changes a lot about, um, actually changes everything about the way that I think of my life, my childhood, um, my ancestors. And, um, and I can't really talk about it all that much more, but it was something that I started working on and writing pretty much the instant that I made this discovery, which was very accidental. I wasn't like, it wasn't like, I know there's still another secret that I yeah. don't know. Come uh, on, there's got to be a book yeah, in this yeah, attic. Yeah, <laughs> no. What can I find? I, I really thought <laughs> that I was done with memoir and um, that Hourglass would probably be my last memoir and um, and looking to go back to fiction and then this, like this, just this huge kind of like wrecking ball came sort of sweeping in, which I'm very grateful for the timing because if it had happened a couple of months earlier... <laughs> I wouldn't have finished Hourglass because it, it was it was of the nature of like sort of changes everything and so um, it's taught me also a tremendous amount and I really look forward to being able to talk about this at some point about the creative unconscious because when I look at all of my work from my very first novel through I would say up until Hourglass because Hourglass didn't have much to do with the family that I come from it had to do with the family that I've made. Right, right. Um, I can actually see that in, in a profoundly unconscious way, this was something I knew. It's all over my work. And so it's one of those things that is both sort of stunning and liberating and so complex, but it's and humbling because really, you know, especially when I talk to students who are writing fiction, the idea that we're in any way in control of what we're writing. You know, I mean, ultimately we are. We can shape it. But the, the the sense of what drives us, like why do you write about what you write about? Why do I write about what I write about? I've been writing about secrets within families for my whole entire career. My novel Family History was about a family secret. My novel Black and White was about a family secret. Why was I writing about family secrets? And if you had said to me, is there, do you think that there's a family secret that you don't know about? I was like, no, no, I think this just really interests me. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, and I'm not exactly sure, Kanaf is publishing it, and it will be out at some point early, my guess is early next year, early 2019, yeah. We're doing things like book jackets now, and 
exciting. Copy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. And uh, thanks for that cliffhanger. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's awesome. Um, and thank you so much for all of your time. I feel like I could chat with you all day long, but I'll let you. <laughs> oh, it's such a pleasure. Anyway, it was really thank fun you so today. much thank for you. sharing everything. Okay. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to check out Bobo Botanicals, B-A-B-O, bobobotanicals.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating if you enjoyed this. A five-star rating and a review would be amazing. Thank you. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.